Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church, Sunday services and building our community is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. We're not all in the same circumstances, but these days are not easy for most of us. Please know that Ed and I are here and available to speak to you if you need any spiritual or emotional support at all. Enjoy the podcast. So good morning, everyone. Week 17. How has it got to be this long? I don't know, but it's great to have you with us. And just following on actually from some of the things that Hannah's uh, been mentioning in the service, I wanted to give a kind of brief snapshot of where we think the church is what God has been speaking to us about in these last few weeks. Firstly, as I think we've said before, we don't believe that this pandemic is some God-initiated wake-up call to the church or to the world. God doesn't uh, cause suffering. In fact, he hates it more than we could possibly ever imagine. So this pandemic is not caused by him and he wants it to be expunged from the world just as he wants that of all death and sickness and let us continue to pray as Hannah prayed earlier that God might bring an end to all this suffering but that is not of course to say that he can't use it for his good Uh, he will always use anything good bad and ugly and I want to talk about this a little bit more in a minute But secondly, we don't think we should be preparing for a new world order in which we are never able to actually meet in person en masse ever again. The writer of the Hebrews, a letter written to a church under severe persecution, encourages them to not stop meeting together. Because meeting together actually isn't just a nice thing to do, and it would be lovely, wouldn't it? It's not that, though. It is actually vital. It is part of who we are. Now, I'll be honest, as a good introvert, I actually quite enjoyed the first few weeks of lockdown. No gatherings, no uh, forced seeing of people, time alone. It was solitude and it was great. But now, even me, the archetypal introvert, I am desperate to see people, as I'm sure most of you are too. As Hannah mentioned uh, in the introduction to worship, we feel it, don't we, when we're apart. Because life was not meant to be lived in isolation. From the very beginning, God's plan has been that one of rich, diverse, deep, in-person community. And without it, we're always going to be living somewhat half-lives. So please know that Hannah and I are doing everything we possibly can to pursue all the options that may be available to us in order for us to uh, meet again in person, obviously safely and obviously responsibly but we want to try and do this as soon as we can. We'll need to be creative. Please join us in praying that God uh, provides something that works for us really well and we'll keep you in the loop with how we progress. But back to God using bad things for good. Now, undoubtedly, the good that can and actually must come out of this pandemic is uh, really this overdue reckoning the church must have with racial injustice. Uh, I'm not sure that what anyone needs is more of us speaking about this, other than to say really that um, the determining factor for our success as a church in fighting racial injustice will not be um, much to do actually with these first flushes of enthusiasm, the Instagram posts and the protest, however important, and they are important, those things are, 
but really it's going to be where we find ourselves in 12 months time, five years time, 10 years time as a church. So let's resist being a flash in the pan and let us commit to a lifetime of justice in word and more importantly in deed. Now, the unwanted irony for us, for Hannah and me in particular, is that looking back, this is what we knew God was calling us to, to be a racially reconciling community. In planting this church, it was sort of there at the forefront of what we wanted to do, but we let our focus slip, and I was particularly guilty in this regard. And so actually with that in mind, I have been uh, looking back over these past few weeks and asking God to speak to us about where else we may have kind of let the ball drop, where else we need to be realigned in what he originally called us to do in planting bread. And one of the passages of the Bible that has spoken to me time and time again and was actually instrumental in part of actually moving here to plant this church was a passage from Acts 16. And in it, it details how Paul and Silas uh, started the church in the city of Philippi. It starts with three very different people. And since actually bread was but a twinkle in the eye, I felt like God saying that this, is, this church in Philippi is similar, if not um, uh, sort of the model for us as bread to follow. And so I've been rereading this passage, and this week I felt God speak again to me about that. And what is clear from Acts 16, which we are going to hear as Alex reads it to us in a little bit, is that uh, the gospel of Jesus is both social and supernatural. And any church, our church, aspiring to be a church of the gospel, must be the same, social and supernatural. Now, by social, I mean both community forming, in the power of the Spirit, we become a social family together even though we are not of the same mother or father, but also by social I mean society transforming. In the power of the Spirit we affect culture. We affect it to look like God's kingdom. That is part of the role of the church. And by supernatural I mean that both our personal lives are changed in ways impossible through just human means, but also that we see this supernatural power of God displayed over and over again in miraculous ways, through healing, through deliverance, through change in the natural order. We love to categorise churches, don't we, in the same way that we love to categorise everything. Is this a liberal church, which, for instance, puts a heavy focus on social justice, or is this a conservative church, which, for instance, may put a focus on personal piety? But when the church is working properly, it is impossible to categorise it. It is impossible to put it in a box because the sick are healed and the societal oppression is destroyed and community is formed and moral goodness is displayed and the poor are clothed and the hungry are fed and people exude all the fruit of the Spirit and all the gifts of the Spirit and it looks neither liberal nor conservative, it just looks beautiful. The pure, spotless bride of Christ. This is what we aspire to at Bread. And so I guess I want to challenge us again this morning with both the social power of the gospel and the supernatural power of the gospel that we might be people and a community that has both flowing through us. So let us, to start with, look at these three people who are the founding members, the founding converts of the church in Philippi. First, Lydia. On the Sabbath, we went outside to the city gate to the river, 
where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theratira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Thank you, Alex. More from him to come in a moment. But first, uh, a couple of things that we need to know about Lydia. And off the bat, they are one, she was a dealer in purple cloth, verse 14. And secondly, she owned her own house, verse 15. Now, purple was the most expensive dye of the time. So to say that Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth is actually a shorthand way of saying she was extremely successful, sophisticated, influential. She was very rich, all emphasized by the fact that she owns her own home and that when she's baptized, it's her household, her household rather than anyone else's household, such as her husband's, her household that is baptized with her. So in um, horribly trite contemporary terms, this is Hollywood Hills, fashion designer to the stars, Lydia. She's a mover and shaker, fundraisers for political parties at her house in the mountains, and parties of kind of exuberance um, and extravagance in her holiday home at the beach, that sort of Lydia. The other thing to know about Lydia is that she was a worshipper of God. Now, this was kind of shorthand way of saying Gentiles who were not obviously born into Israel, were not Jewish by birth, but who were interested and who um, subscribed to the Torah and to uh, observing Jewish religious practices. So they would sort of hang around at the synagogue, they would uh, try and read the scriptures and have people interpret it to them, they would try and follow the law, they would worship God and sacrifice to him in the way that the Jewish people would as well. So this is Lydia, the first church member in Philippi. Here is the second, back to Alex. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. So if Lydia is Hollywood Hills, this demon-possessed slave girl is Hollywood Boulevard. We can only speculate on how she came to be in this state, but it's obvious that this woman is at the other end of the social, economic and influence scale to Lydia. She is owned and she is oppressed both societally, she is a slave, and spiritually she is demonized. She, in human terms, is a nothing. And finally, let's meet the third person we're introduced to in Philippi, who, unlike the first two people, is not a woman, although it's interesting, isn't it, that the church starts with two women, almost as if women in God's kingdom can do anything. Uh, but this is not a woman, this is a man, and Paul and Silas, having been delivered, uh, having delivered rather the slave girl from her demonic oppression, uh, are experienced the wrath of her owners who have lost their cash cow. The whole town is uh, brought in to kind of persecute them, they are beaten, and finally they are thrown in prison. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So the third convert is a jailer. He's not influential, but neither is he living in the gutter. He's the blue-collar man, minding his own business, getting on with his life. He's straightforward and trustworthy and diligent, which is clear from the fact that he, um, when he realises the earthquake has freed all the prisoners and they might escape, he goes to take his own life rather than face the ignominy of not having done his job properly. He is the honest Joe. But he too becomes a believer and his whole household is baptised and it is said he is filled with joy. So a sophisticat, a slave girl and a jailer, this is the church. This is what the gospel does. It brings together people who would never normally interact, whom society would do all it can to actually keep apart and it destroys the dividing walls between them. The question is, how does it do this? And I think it does it in two different ways. Firstly, the gospel speaks to our infinite human value. And secondly, the gospel meets our infinite human need. Now, one of the ways the gospel unifies us is it proclaims that we are all of the same infinite value. God does not prefer rich or poor. He does not prefer poor to rich. He does not prefer women to men or men to women. Every single person is created in his image and is of infinite value to him. Now, I know that we think that we believe this and I know that we would like to believe it, but in reality, we find it difficult to actually accept because it means that he loves your racist great uncle from Iowa in exactly the same way in which he loves your tediously virtue-signalling woke neighbour here in LA. And he loves both of them exactly the same amount as he loves you, which is infinitely. We find this difficult to grasp because none of us ever actually really operate like it, however much we might pretend that we do or we would like to do. In Britain, for instance, now, it is, of course, completely socially unacceptable and over and over and over signalled as being entirely wrong, because it is entirely wrong, to be racist, for instance. But it is completely socially acceptable to be anti-American. We all do things similar to this. It turns out if we scratch the surface in our minds, some groups or individuals just aren't quite as infinitely valuable as others. 
We don't realise that we make moral value judgments about people all the time. We do not see people for people. We see them for what they do, or for what they say, or how they behave, or what they don't say, or what they don't do. And we often, of course, see them for how they dress. That's really how we see everyone, isn't it? God, though, by contrast, sees all of us as we are. And we are, in his eyes, unconditionally loved and infinitely valuable. This is the first side of things. The other side of things is the gospel unifies us because it meets our universal, infinite human needs. We are in need. Every single one of us. This isn't actually something that culture likes to readily admit. We are, after all, aren't we? Autonomous, powerful, self-sufficient individuals. We can do anything that we want to if we just put our minds to it. We're not in need. But notice how all the characters in Philippi are ultimately not the subjects, the heroes, the protagonists of the story. They are actually the objects. They are the recipients. There is a different hero. Lydia, yes, she's longing to know who God is and how to be good, but it is the Lord who opens her heart. The slave girl doesn't free herself from spiritual oppression. God's supernatural power does. The jailer doesn't come, overcome his trembling, suicidal fear. He acknowledges that something, someone, somewhere needs to save him. And having allowed Jesus to do that, he is, as I said, filled with joy. So the gospel upsets societal norms, it destroys societal oppression, and it forms a whole new community of love and justice and goodness because it exposes and it meets our fundamental needs. And in so doing, it draws us not just to ourselves, but to him, the one with the power. So let's talk about God's supernatural power. Hannah and I have seen some extraordinary things over the years. We've seen a kid who was in a coma having contracted meningitis, whom the doctors gave a 100% chance of having severe brain damage for the rest of his life. But after prayer, after the whole church came together to pray, he came out of a coma with no brain damage and no side effects whatsoever. We have seen uh, hearts uh, that have not formed properly be completely healed. We have seen vocal cords which have collapsed be restored. We have seen someone who had cancer riddled through her body be prayed for and then for all the signs of cancer to be gone the next day. Just recently someone was telling us at church how someone had prophesied and they had prophesied that uh, this moment for them was going to be one where something significant changed and it was going to be a change of great joy. And unbeknownst to anyone at the time, it was in that week that they conceived and are having a child. Now, there was also someone uh, recently, a friend, who was saying, uh, actually at the beginning, really, of the life of the church, their spouse's life was completely changed once and for all. Now, it wasn't because of great teaching, it wasn't because of great worship, it wasn't because of great people, although all of those things are, of course, part of bread, but it was because they experienced the Spirit in such a fundamental and powerful way that they are and have never been the same again. We are people in need, aren't we? We are in need of the supernatural power of God. Nothing else is going to do. 
Without it, we are just well-meaning activists, which is, of course, not nothing, but we can't change hearts. We can't deliver people from demonic oppression. We can't fling wide prison doors and shake foundations. We are in need. How many arguments have you had with people about politics, about race, about the coronavirus, where you just go round and round in circles? Well, the power of God, in contrast, changes whole lives, bodies, hearts, and yes, of course, minds. Saul, who became Paul, was going this way along a road to Damascus, uh, spewing out murderous threats towards God's people. And then he is confronted by the power of Jesus. And he starts going the other way instead, the way towards preaching the good news and healing the sick and setting the oppressed free. We are in need. So can I encourage us, let us be a supernatural church again. Lockdown cannot and will not stop the power of God. But we, of course, might. So let's choose not to be complacent and let's choose not to be resistant. Let us admit our need. And we do this by acknowledging his power and opening ourselves to his power, not anyone else's. I'm sorry to say that Joe Biden is not going to save us. Do not trust Princes, says the psalmist, do not put your trust in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Instead, and let me read the rest of this psalm, and with this we're going to end. But instead, he says, blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob. Blessed are we whose hope is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord our God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. He sustains the fatherless and the widow. He frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, O people of God, for all generations. Praise the Lord. So we become a supernatural church again, one filled with his power by praying. Come Holy Spirit, fill your people with power once again. Wash us with your blood. Shake the very foundations of this nation that we might be one with you. So as the worship begins again, let me pray for us all. And I wonder whether we might just stand where we are, just as a sign of actually being serious about this. And as you stand, perhaps you could open your hands, Perhaps you could close your eyes just so you're not distracted, just so you are showing with your body, uh, you are embodying what it is your heart is wanting to say, which is, I am open to your power. And let me pray for us. Lord, we admit our need of you. We can't do this alone. We thank you that your spirit is given to all, men and women, young and old. You pour out your spirit on us all. 
and we ask Holy Spirit that you would fill us once again with your power. Let us become people of your kingdom once more. Let us be the people who preach the good news in your power, who heal the sick in your power, who set the oppressed free in your power. Lord, we ask for healing, we ask for prophecy, we ask for all the gifts of your Spirit to flow from us. Fill us again, we pray. Fill us again. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Holy Spirit, fall in this place. We hunger for your power. We long for your embrace. Fill us anew, we pray, with the river of your anointing. Clothe us with power, we Come with the fire of God Holy Spirit Speak.